From MPB Think Radio, this is Southern Remedy. Sitting in for Dr. Rick DeShazo, I'm Kevin Farrell. So Dr. Rick is out today, but we have a familiar voice back. Dr. Alan Harris returns to the program, and our guest this morning is Dr. Alicia Kleinman. You know, everyone is either old or will grow old, so today we're taking your questions about geriatrics. Give us a call. The number is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 877-672-7464. Or you can email your question to southernremedy at mpbonline.org. It's the science of aging today on Southern Remedy. We'll be back with more after the news. Welcome back. You're listening to Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Sitting in for Dr. Rick DeShazo this week, I'm Kevin Farrell, but I'm here with uh, two people that will be able to answer your medical questions because certainly uh, you don't want my medical advice on your questions. But I'm here, uh, 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 a returning voice, Dr. Alan Harris, back with us again. So, Dr. Alan, good to have you back in studio. Yeah, good morning. I'm glad to be back. Uh, introduce our guest for us. So we've got Alicia Kleinman with us. Um, she is uh, trained in internal medicine and is doing specialty training in geriatric medicine um, at, at the university. So, Alicia, tell us a little bit about what a geriatrician is and and what the benefits of, of seeing a geriatrician over just um, a regular primary care doctor are. Okay. Well, good morning. Um So geriatric medicine is general medicine, like your family practitioner, your internist, with additional things that serve patients that are 65 years and older, such as falling, memory impairment, and urinary incontinence. So we do the general stuff and a little bit extra also. So you provide their primary care, but can also or or have more training in the issues that just affect elderly population. Yes, exactly. This is Southern Remedy. If you have a question this morning, you can call us. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring Our phone number is 877-672-7464. You can send an email to southernremedy at mpbonline.org. We've got an early call on the line, so let's go to Grand Bay, Alabama, invite George into the program. Good morning, George. Good morning, Kevin and doctors. Uh, my question is twofold. One is, when does one become a geriatric? I mean, do you get like a certificate in the mail? <laughs> and the other one is, I'm 66, my sister's 69, and we suffer, I mean, really suffer from what restless leg syndrome It's down from, from the kneecap, you know, tibia, fibula, those muscles, and it just feels like, uh, worm legs. It just feels like your muscles are moving, and 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 so far, I don't think uh, medicine can. I think it's a syndrome. They can't figure out what it is. Okay, so so your first question: When are you um, a geriatric? patient. So it's kind of an arbitrary number, um, but 65 is when um, you're considered to have crossed some imaginary threshold into that into that age group. Um, 
But as far as restless leg syndrome, you're right, it is a syndrome. And and the cause of it, there are some associations, other medical conditions that are associated with it. But it can also be something that happens just without other other issues. And it's exactly what you're describing, just this urge to move your legs um, that's really, it can be very severe and uncomfortable where you just feel like you have to be moving your legs all the time. So it can be difficult for patients to get any rest. Um, there are some medicines that are available for it. Dr. Kleiman, you want to comment on those? So there are two medications for it. One is called Primipaxol. The other one is Ropinarol. And uh, we see a lot of patients in the geriatrics clinic with restless leg syndrome. And a good amount of them are controlled on those medications. Uh, and they're safe for that geriatric age range. Because a lot of times when you get older, you're not clearing medications very well. So we're concerned with specific medications that could you know, make you fall more easily that you might not clear out well. But those medications are safe for elderly patients. Another thing to make sure is that you don't have low blood count levels, specifically low iron levels, because those can cause restless leg syndrome. Right. And something that could cause low iron is if you had a, a slow GI bleed, um, which would be it can it can often be asymptomatic. You know, it's not a, a heavy bleed to where you're seeing blood in your stool. It's something that's happening really slowly and that could be can be associated with a colon cancer. So it's really important that you get your colonoscopy screenings, which is recommended um, for everybody to get starting at age 50. So if you're if you're having this issue and you haven't had um haven't haven't had that screening test or or your blood work checked, then that's something that you should talk to your doctor about also before just starting treatment. Something specific for elderly patients is that um, as far as colonoscopies and screening, we do stop them at age 80 because there's not going to be a benefit if you do it after. And it's you know, somewhat of an uncomfortable procedure for our elderly patients, especially if they're frail, because it, the prep for it causes you to go to the bathroom all night long, right? which could predispose them to falling. Um, but unless they have some blood loss, then we would pursue it. But otherwise, after age 80, you would not need a colonoscopy. Unless you were having something that, that made you yeah. want to get that. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, George. I hope that answers your question. Um, if it doesn't, you can send us an email. Kevin, what's that What's that email again? It's uh, southernremedy at mpbonline.org. Or if you'd like, you can give us a call with your question. The phone number is 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell sitting in for Dr. Rick DeShazo this week, here with Dr. Alan Harris and Dr. Alicia Kleinman, ready to take your questions about geriatrics. And while we're waiting for some phone calls to come in, I was wondering if I could uh, ask a question. Uh, my father is uh, in his mid-80s, and uh, he and my mother live in upstate New York. My mother has told me recently that my dad has begun to have Alzheimer's-like symptoms, primarily really d- dealing a lot with memory loss. So a couple of questions. First of all, is it usually in a situation like that someone's short-term memory that's going? Is it long-term? Is it sometimes a little bit of both? And then the second part would be, what are some things that you would tell family members of someone like that to, to kind of help them deal with that situation? So we see a, a lot of memory loss in geriatrics because as you get older, you're more likely to develop things like Alzheimer's dementia as well as other types of dementia. Um, you do initially lose short-term memory, um, and then later in the stages, you will eventually lose long-term memory, unfortunately. The things to look out for are the short-term memory. We see patients presenting with forgetting conversations, repeating themselves over and over, calling their family with the same news. Um, 
Now, as far as just having memory loss or mild cognitive impairment, which is not dementia, versus having dementia, the change is your function. So if you can still balance your checkbook, shop, following a shopping list, not having to return to the grocery store, drive a car, cook, following a recipe, managing your medications, then you just have mild cognitive impairment or just memory loss. If you start having functional impairment in those levels, then you're defined as dementia. And that's a little bit um, more concerning. And that's when we start talking to family members about what to expect. Because unfortunately, at this time, we don't have any really good treatments. There's a lot of research going on in dementia. But right now, it's just about preparing the family for what to expect as it progresses and they eventually lose that long-term memory. What, does the person know that they're forgetting things? I mean, I'm, I'm wondering how, you know, in a conversation, would you would they get upset if you kept repeating the same information to them? I'm, I'm just curious as to how sort of handle that in a social situation. So they're not aware that they um, are forgetting things and repeating themselves. And they get a little bit embarrassed if you tell them, Mom, you've already told me that. You know, we already discussed this, and it can cause a lot of frustration if you try to correct them. And so what we recommend is if they get a little bit confused or if they're repeating themselves to just kind of go with it. We don't want to upset them because they can get easily upset by that. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I think we have another caller on the line, so let's go next to Mobile. Richard has called in. Go ahead, Richard. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Lately, I have noticed I have... having numbness in my hands, both hands, sometimes as high as my elbow when I'm sitting still, like driving for a long period of time or reading or sitting watching TV. I'm 67, uh, have a little hypertension, and that's the only medical problems I have. Okay. Any suggestions? Well, if it's happening in both hands, then then that's different than like sometimes people have numbness driving like in one in one hand and sometimes you'll just find that you're sitting with your elbow resting on the armrest and putting some some pressure on the nerve right there and you just move your arm and that goes away if it's happening in both hands then it's unlikely that you're putting pressure on you know both arms at the same time so thinking about where the nerves come out. So the nerves that that supply your arms come out at your neck. Um, And so if you're having numbness in both arms, then it makes us think that there may be a problem um, with some compression on the nerves at the neck in your cervical vertebra. Um, And that's something that happens um, in not just elderly people, but, you know, can happen people in general. If you've had an injury before or you can just have some stenosis there, which basically means the the hole where the nerves come out just gets um, just gets tight and can put pressure, especially if you're holding your neck a certain way. Um, and so that's something to talk to your doctor about. It can, you know, it, it could be a sign of something more serious. So that does need to be checked out. You're listening to Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. We're going to take our first break of the hour. When we'll get back, we'll continue to take your questions about geriatrics. Uh, I'm Kevin Farrell, sitting in for Dr. Rick DeShazo, and I'm here this morning with Dr. Alan Harris, and our guest is Dr. Alicia Kleinman. If you have a question for the program this morning, you can call us at one eight seven seven mpb ring Our phone number is one 877 672-7464 or you can send an email to southernremedy at mpbonline.org We've got Alan and Al waiting on the phone. We'll get to those calls when we get back. You're listening to Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio.
This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. mpbonline.org. MPB Think Radio. And welcome back to Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Kevin Farrell, sitting in this week for Dr. Rick DeShazo. I'm here in studio with Dr. Alan Harris, and our guest this morning is Dr. Alicia Kleiman. We're ready to take your questions about geriatrics. You can give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring Our phone number is 877-672-7464, or send an email to southernremedy at mpbonline.org. Got some callers on the line, so let's go back to the phone lines and go to Picayune. Alan's called in this morning. Go ahead, Alan. Hi. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I my my question is is twofold. I have a mother who will be eighty three in January. She is a retired professor. Um, she is now working part time. She's been working part excuse me full time at Walmart here, and. Um, She's a full-time cashier. She's, um, I, in regards to the statement, you know, the doctor made earlier about, you know, if they're, if they can drive, if they can shop, et cetera, et cetera, then there's really no sign of dementia. But my question is, she always tells the same story over and over again. She's always tired because, you know, she's 83 and she works so hard, but how do you tell the difference between the onset of a dementia problem versus someone that just doesn't know that they told the same story over and over and over again? And the other part of my question is she's always asked me, how do I, what is there out there for me to help with my memory? And, since I have the computer and I can Google, there's just millions of things out there that someone can do. But what could someone her age do to help improve her memory? Okay. Those are my two questions. Okay. Well, the first question, you make a good point. So she's a retired professor, and now she's starting to lose some memory. So um, <clears throat> people that have higher levels of education um, – the change can be more subtle because they're so high functioning to start with. Um, and so, you know, they can progress to, to cognitive impairment and then dementia, but you don't see it as soon because, because they have such a high level of functioning to start with. Um, and then Dr. Kleinman, the, the change from mild cognitive impairment that you were saying earlier to dementia, it's a continuum, right? So you can, some people just get cognitive impairment and stay that way, right? But sometimes you're going to progress to dementia. Is that correct? So about 20% of people will progress from mild cognitive impairment into dementia. So that's, you know, a pretty small number, only 20%. As, as Dr. Harris said, um, the remaining 80% will just stay with mild cognitive impairment. They'll retain that function. A lot of what we see in our clinic is that the family does not realize that the patient has um, lost the ability to produce those functions like driving and shopping and finances until there's a big issue like a major motor motor vehicle accident. So the best thing for you to do is to go behind her and check her um, checkbook and make sure that she is balancing her checkbook correctly. Uh, check her medications and make sure that she is taking them correctly because she might be having some mild impairment in those that you're not aware of just yet. 
So what about a second question about what you can do? Um, I know a lot of people ask about herbal stuff because there's so much. Just like he said, if you Google, you're flooded with information. So what is actually evidence-based out there that you recommend? So what we recommend um, is for people to stay healthy and exercise every day, five times a week, um, you know, good exercise, walking, water aerobics is very good because it's good on your knees, eating healthy, uh, making sure that you're maintaining your weight because early weight loss is a sign of dementia. It precedes it. Um, and just making sure that you're going to your regular doctor appointments, keeping up with your medications, staying active in your surroundings. Working is a great way to stay active. You want to communicate with people all the time and keep those skills up. As far as herbal supplements, there's no evidence that those will help. All right, Alan, we appreciate that phone call. Let's uh, go next to Mobile. Al's called in this morning. Go ahead, Al. Yeah, I'm 67 years old, and I've had the diagnosis of mild cognitive impairment for seven years now. A neurologist picked it up on basis of the, you know, three questions and count backwards from you know, 100 by sevens and all that stuff. And uh, and I've, I've got a 15, 15 point IQ loss. It's been verified by a number of tests over the years, but I don't seem to be getting worse. And, but my, I've, I've seen a psychiatrist recently and he says, oh, to have a, a diagnosis of that, you need a really extensive workup. So should I have something more checked out or uh, is sounds- that enough? Yeah. Well, it sounds like you've you've had a pretty extensive workup. If they've you know tested, if you've had IQ testing, um, you know they've done the questions. The what you're what you're talking about for for others, um, the counting backwards from a hundred by sevens, um, remembering three things. So those are things that um, just a quick screening that your doctor can do in the office. Those are those are verified tests that can lead us into more testing. Um, one thing we were talking about the education level earlier, though, that's something important. So if you have a, a patient, sometimes you know I'll, I'll ask people how far they went in school because if you have somebody that at at their best couldn't, you know, some people can't do that. They can't go from a hundred to ninety three. You know, keep subtracting seven every time. They could never do that. And so the fact that they can't do that now isn't, you know, doesn't mean that they're having any impairment. Um, so I think you've had pretty significant um, testing, unless you're having some neurologic symptoms, weakness, numbness. You know, I don't think there's any need for anything else. And like Dr. Kleinman just said, you know, 20 percent, only 20 percent progress from mild cognitive impairment. So the fact that you're not progressing, it's is normal. Is that is that right? So, yeah, I think that you've most likely had enough of a workup. Um, we do do cognitive screenings, and we choose the tests based on your educational level. If you've had uh, higher than a high school level, we'll do a, a test that's designed for people that have a higher degree. Um, as far as more intensive tests, I think he was referring to neuropsychological testing, which takes a few hours minimum. That typically we use if the picture is a little bit confused and we're not sure what type of dementia you have, but we do not use that for mild cognitive impairment. But you do want to make sure that you have had the proper lab work checked for mild cognitive impairment or dementia. You want to make sure that your doctor has checked your B12 levels, your folate, your thyroid levels, as well as your kidney uh, and liver function and your blood counts. Because those can all affect your memory if those aren't treated properly. 
All right, Al, thanks for the call. You're listening to Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. We're looking for your questions this morning about growing older, about geriatrics. Call us at 1-877-MPB-RING. That phone number is one 672 7464 or you can send an email to southernremedy at mpbonline.org. Let's go to Jackson. Evelyn's on the line. Evelyn, go ahead, please. Uh, the caller who asked about what you can do, um, my grandmother used to play a very difficult solitary game, and she would solitary game, and she would play it almost every afternoon. And you know, and I can remember her picking up a card and putting it on her forehead and telling herself, "Now just think, just think." And and uh, she did that as a way of uh, just staying alert and active. And now the caller also mentioned that his parents had been a college professor. Now, my father taught college, and we found that if he just taught one adjunct class, his memory and uh, was keener. Just something that kept his, uh, you know, his mental faculties moving. And uh, volunteerism, um, you know, if our games aren't your boats, don't float your boats, and maybe crossword puzzles or or just anything that kind of keeps it active. And it doesn't have to be, you know, every day something, but just something that keeps your, your mind going. And, I, I, you know, my grandmother was a very practical woman, and I just thought, you know, I don't think a doctor ever told her that. I think she just did it. Yeah, those are those are all great suggestions. So, um, yeah, it didn't, it doesn't have to be anything specific. Just whatever whatever you enjoy, um, to to stay active, to keep your to to and use your use your mind, um, a little bit, whatever whatever way that that you like to, um, I think are and all those are good suggestions. Um, so thank you for that call. Um, so moving away from memory loss a little bit, and we'll still take calls on whatever whatever geriatric topics you want to talk about. But vaccines are a big issue um, in the elderly. Um, Dr. Kleiman, what are what are y'all doing with that now? So it's really important to remember that as you get older, your immune system is weakened. You basically are moving back to your childhood. You can't fight off illnesses as well as you did before. So I see a lot of patients that come into the clinic and we talk about flu shots, pneumonia shots, and they say, oh, I've never had those. I don't get sick typically. But the thing to remember is as you get older, if you do get the flu or the pneumonia, it can be very devastating to your body because it's not able to fight it off as easily. And you can end up very sick and unfortunately sometimes, um, you know, in, in an intensive care unit from it. So we recommend that all patients 65 years and older get an influenza vaccine every year. And they, the flu shot doesn't make you sick, right? That's a that's a um, concern that some people have a misconception on. Yeah, it will It will not make you sick. It may make you feel like you have some achy muscles for the next day, but we recommend that patients who have that feeling just take a Tylenol after they have their flu shot, and then they're perfectly fine. We also recommend that you get a pneumonia shot, a pneumovax, once after 65 or older, um, and that will protect you against the most common causes of pneumonia. It's one-time shot. Uh, after you're 65. Another thing that we recommend all of our elderly patients to get is what's called a Tdap. It is a new formulation for the tetanus vaccine that has a pertussis component in it. 
The pertussis vaccines that were previously given out were thought to last a lifetime, and unfortunately, they've been found not to. They're actually revaccinating everybody of all ages, particularly elderly patients with this formulation, the Tdap. So what is pertussis? <clears throat> if you got sick with that, how would you feel? What happens? <laughs> so that's whooping cough, right? Yeah. So yeah. you get like a um, like an upper respiratory infection. People feel like they have a cold, just kind of wait it out. Start that part gets a little better, but then you have this horrible cough that persists, which could be devastating for an elderly patient. Yeah, it can be so severe that people break ribs even yes. from the cough. Yeah. Um, so we're recommending that all our elderly patients get the Tdap, whether or not their booster for tetanus has been within the last 10 years. And after you have that, you'll need to continue to get the regular tetanus booster every 10 years. A lot of people forget about that. Yeah, so tetanus in general, if you've, you know, it's every 10 years, unless you have, um, you know, you get cut with a rusty, mm -hmm. rusty metal. So if you if you have a exposure or something, you step on a rusty nail or get cut with whatever. Um, if you've had it in the last five years, then you're good, right? Yeah. If it's been between five and 10 years or, or more than five years, I guess, then then you need a another a re-up on that. Um, what about the what about the Zoster vaccine? So the Zoster vaccine um, is designed for the shingles. It is a one-time shot, and we recommend that people that are 60 years and older get it. Uh, it will reduce your chance of getting shingles um, and reduce your chance of getting post-herpatic neuralgia. What post-herpatic neuralgia is, is pain at the site of where you had your rash from shingles. It can last a lifetime even after the rash resolves. So that's specifically why I recommend that patients get it is because living with pain for the rest of your life even after the rash resolves is not worth it if you can take a vaccine that can reduce your chance of getting it. A lot of patients ask two different questions about that. They say, well, I don't remember having the chicken pox as a kid. Do I still need to get a shingles vaccine? And the answer is yes. Uh, a lot of people can be exposed to the chicken pox as kids and have what's called a subacute illness and not actually develop the rash, but they're still carrying the virus and can develop shingles later on in life. Another question that I hear from patients a lot is, well, I've already had the shingles. Should I still get the vaccine? And the answer is yes. Specifically, those patients I really recommend the vaccine in because it reduces the chance of them getting shingles again, especially if they've had more than one occurrence, and it will reduce that risk of post-herpatic neuralgia, which they're more prone to get if they've had multiple episodes of shingles already. You're listening to Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Kevin Farrell, in for Dr. Rick DeShazo this week. I'm here with Dr. Alan Harris, and our guest is Dr. Alicia Kleinman. We're ready to take your questions about geriatrics through the rest of the hour. Give us a call when you have a question ready to go. Our phone number is 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can send an email to southernremedy at mpbonline.org. We'll be back with more of the program after this break. Think Radio. Think Radio. 
And welcome back to Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell sitting in for Dr. Rick DeShazer this week. Here with Dr. Alan Harris, and our guest this morning is Dr. Alicia Kleinman. We've been answering questions throughout the hour about geriatrics. Still time for you to call in if you have a question. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 Our email address is southernremedy at mpbonline.org. Dr. Allen, I think you had a follow-up uh, to we were talking about the uh, the um, the shingles vaccine before the break. Right, and we had a caller during the break that couldn't stay on the line that wants to know about um, are shingles contagious? So shingles are contagious um, when you have the open lesions when they're first beginning. So the best thing to do is if you have a, a parent um, or a sibling that has them or yourself – do not touch the open lesions. They have to close up. It's usually very early on in the rash that they're contagious. So you'd want to wear gloves, wash your hands, be very, very prudent. Yeah, and so for the people that don't know what shingles are, let's talk about that just a little bit. So shingles um, is a rash that's it's a vesicle. So it's um, like an open, it's like a blister. Mm-hmm. Um, and you get them in um, like an, an area, it doesn't cross the midline. So it's in one area, it's often on the trunk um, that'll wrap around like to your spine and then around to the level of your, you know, to the to where your belly button is um, in a like a band. Um, and it's these open vesicles. And if you catch it early, um, then you can take antiviral treatment. If you've had it for a while, you know, if it's been a week or so before you see the doctor, then that's not going to work for you. But if you get it in the first couple days, then antiviral treatment's helpful um, and helping it go away. And what you were talking about, tell us a little bit, Dr. Clement, about the post-herpatic neuralgia, like why that happens. So the post-herpatic neuralgia happens because the virus has gotten into your nerves and irritated those nerve roots. And it stays that way, right? So and, that nerve, can, that that nerve can stay irritated yeah. for a long time. Um, so we talked about everybody getting the vaccine, even if you've had it. But this is a live vaccine. So vaccines can be dead or live. So what that means, basically, is whatever the vaccine is for, um, the way it's prepared is... Um, the virus, so like the flu vaccine, for instance, is and the, the shot, just the regular shot, is a dead virus. So they take the flu, grow it, kill it, and then give you some of that. And so you, you develop antibodies to that, but the, it's a dead virus, so that can't make you sick. Shingles, the shingles vaccine is a live virus. And so if you have certain immunocompromised states, then you shouldn't get it, right? So who are, who are those people? So patients that are on steroids chronically, like prednisone, um, which should not get the shingles vaccine. Uh, obviously, pregnant patients shouldn't. Uh, people with HIV or AIDS, uh, as well as patients that are on specific medications that will suppress your immune system, like for rheumatoid arthritis, like Enterocept, medications like that. So if you're seeing a rheumatologist, you should probably ask them if you should be taking the Zostavax before you get it. Yeah, and that's something, that vaccine you can like go to the drugstore and get, right? So you have to, that's something you should talk to your doctor about before you basically go vaccinate yourself. So the the shingles vaccine is a little bit unusual because it um, cannot be stored at clinics because it has to be stored in a refrigerator and it has to be given within a few hours of being taken out of the refrigerator because it's unstable. So typically your doctor will talk to you about it, provide you with the prescription, and you'll go to the pharmacy, fill the prescription, and then they'll give it to you there at the pharmacy rather than bringing it back to your clinic. 
The last thing that I wanted to say about the shingles vaccine, that unlike the rest of the vaccines, um, the coverage from insurance is very variable. Some insurance companies will cover it 100 percent, while other ones will require a copay of 100 to 300 dollars. But this is a one time vaccine. So I think that the benefits of it outweigh the risk. So I usually give my patients a prescription for it and tell them to think about it um, and try to come up with the money for it at some point. You're listening to Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell in for Dr. Rick DeShazo this week here with Dr. Alan Harris. And our guest is Dr. Alicia Kleinman. We're answering questions about geriatrics. If you have one, call us at one eight seven seven mpb ring Our phone number is 877 672 7464. You can also send an email to southernremedy at mpbonline.org. In fact, we do have an email to share. It says, my mother's 83 years old and has begun to hear a child crying at night. She wants to get up and find the child or she'll hear people outside. Someone has suggested that she might have sundowners. Can you explain this further? Okay, so two parts here. Um, Sundowning is something that is when patients get um, confused at night and um, it can happen in the hospital, especially because you're, you know, nurses are coming in all night. Your sleep cycle is um, is altered, and so oftentimes the best thing for sundowning is to um, is to stay on a regular sleep cycle, sleep at night, be awake during the day, don't take naps. Sometimes people get in the pattern of taking a nap during the day, and then they can't sleep at night, and then it can cause some confusion. Um, but these hallucinations, I mean, this, this, the other thing, the hearing a child crying is, is an auditory hallucination. So you're hearing something that isn't there. Um, and that can be a totally different thing. So hallucinations is not a typical feature of sundowning. Sundowning is very common in more advanced stages of dementia. Hallucinations, whether they're visual or auditory, whether you're seeing children or hearing children, can be a manifestation of dementia. If it's happened early on, you see the memory loss and the hallucinations occurring within a one-year time period, then it could be um, part of a disease that's called Lewy body dementia, which is similar to Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. It kind of combines the different symptoms for both. Um, and another thing that it can occur in is more advanced stages of Alzheimer's. So if you've seen the memory loss for years and then you're developing these visual or auditory hallucinations, it might just be a later manifestation of Alzheimer's itself. So um, how can you help someone like that, that that might be having hallucinations like that? Because you would imagine if, if the grandmother is hearing a child that's crying and is trying to find that but never can because the child's not there, you would imagine the anxiety level would just go through the roof. How, If you're in that situation as a family member, how can you help someone like that? So this is actually a very difficult question because there are medications that can help with hallucinations, antipsychotics um, such as Haldol. But they are a little bit more risky to use in elderly patients. Um, They have an increased risk of morbidity and mortality causing death in elderly patients. And the FDA has actually put a black box warning on those medications. 
So we like to try to redirect the patient, um, have family members there. As long as it's not causing a lot of problems and they're easily redirected, we'll try to avoid those kind of medications. But sometimes that's very unavoidable because these patients may not be able to be calmed down. And then you would try a low-dose antipsychotic and monitor them closely. Back to the phone lines we go. Another comment on the shingles vaccine or a question, I guess. Shirley's called in today. Go ahead, Shirley. Uh, good morning. Thank you for uh, letting me ask. Um, regarding the shingles vaccine, uh, people who have uh, experienced symptoms of, of regular herpes, her, the you know herpes herpes simplex viruses, how does how does that affect them? Okay, so we're it can be confusing because we're talking about two different things. So um, the herpes simplex, which is the virus that gives you fever blisters um, or genital herpes, um, is a completely different virus than what causes shingles. So shingles is caused by the virus that gives you chicken pox, um, which is completely different. And so um, the vaccine for shingles has nothing to do with herpes simplex or fever blisters. There's actually no vaccine for that. Um, um, and you can treat them both with the same, they're both viruses, and so you can treat them with the same medicine, which would be acyclovir or some of the other um, preparations like Valtrex, Fambir um, for those, but but they're completely different. So your shingles vaccine is going to not have anything to do with herpes simplex. Also, uh, regarding the shingles vaccine that we've been discussing here, uh, we had a caller who called in to say that the they thought that the shingles vaccine was covered as a wellness benefit under the Affordable Care Act for those 60 and over, and also mentioned that grocery stores may be a cheaper alternative than pharmacies. So that would be something, if you're interested in the shingles vaccine, uh, to check into, see if it might be covered uh, as a wellness benefit under the Affordable Care Act. You are listening to Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. We're looking for questions about growing old today. Give us a call at 877-MPB-RING. The number is 1-877-672-7464. Send an email to southernremedy at mpbonline.org. Okay, Kevin. So one topic that, that we haven't talked about that's an issue um, with the elderly that can it's pretty common, but a lot of people are embarrassed to talk about it with their doctor is sexual dysfunction. Um, some people, I think, think that once they get to a certain age that, you know, that's just that part of their life is over, which doesn't have to be that way. Um, and there's some, there's some research and, and, you know, movement to, to, to talk about this among the geriatric um, population. Dr. Kleiman, tell me a little bit about that. So sexual dysfunction, I think, is a common problem in people of all age. But as you get older, it's more common. And a lot of people think, well, I'm older. Maybe I don't need to be having sex anymore. Um, I think I personally disagree with that. I think you should have a, a, set, a healthy sexual relationship with your significant other for lifelong. Um, I do see a lot of patients in clinic that are still sexually active and have a healthy relationship with their partner. And um, I do encounter a lot of patients that are having sexual dysfunction. And the best thing for you to do is to discuss it with your physician. Um, they can help help you to address any underlying problems. As far as male sexual dysfunction, most commonly it's erectile dysfunction. And there are medications uh, the out there for them to be able to try. And if those medications fail, there are other alternatives um, surgically that can be done, and you would see a urologist for that. 
Female sexual dysfunction seems to be a more common problem that I encounter in my clinics in elderly women. Uh, as time goes on, you have less estrogen in your body. In particularly, you need estrogen in your vaginal area. And so if you don't have that estrogen, you can see that your skin in your vagina kind of gets a little bit thinner and can tear more easily. And things can kind of fuse together. So it's very important that every year you do still continue to have a vaginal exam even after your pap smears have completed because of your age. You just want to make sure that you're not developing vaginal atrophy because that can easily be fixed with just topical estrogen. Right. And so that's a great point. Topical estrogen, which means just a cream that you that you put in the area because estrogen um, replacement therapy is a totally different issue. And um, we can talk about that a little bit when we come back from the break. You are listening to Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell in for Dr. Rick DeShazo this week with Dr. Alan Harris and our guest, Dr. Alicia Kleinman. If you have a question, still time for you to get worked in at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464. We'll be back with more after this break. Welcome back. You're listening to Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Kevin Farrell, in for Dr. Rick DeShazo this week, and I'm here with Dr. Alan Harris and our guest, Dr. Alicia Kleinman. If you have a question about growing older, give us a call at 1-877-MPB-RING. Our phone number is 877-672-7464, or you can send an email to southernremedy at mpbonline.org. All right. We've got a couple callers waiting that I want to get to in these last 10 minutes, but um, talk briefly about the estrogen that we talked about before, because that's a pretty important issue that some people um, don't understand. So estrogen replacement therapy, it used to be something that people would take, um, it'd be prescribed after menopause and just stayed on it. Um, and it was even used as a treatment for osteoporosis or prevention of osteoporosis. But there was this big study that came out in the 90s um, where estrogen replacement therapy was looked at for cardiovascular benefit, which turned out to not play out. Um, but there was, they did see an increase in breast cancer after somebody had been on estrogen replacement therapy for five years. Um, and so estrogen replacement therapy, as far as systemic, um, which is like a pill or something that's getting into your system, um, not just a topical in the in the vaginal area, is is only recommended to control the symptoms of menopause um, for as short a time period as you as, as you can take it and not to exceed five years. So that's not what we're recommending for people with vaginal dryness. That's a that's a cream that only stays in the area. It doesn't get in your in your system. So I just wanted to make that distinction. All right. Back to the phone lines we go. Betty's called in from Long Beach. Betty, go ahead, please. Uh, yes, my question is regarding the shingle shot. I had gotten shingles about a year ago, and I got after I gotten over, I got the shot. And I was wondering, is that shot just one time good for life, or uh, do I have to get it again if I get the shingles again? Okay, um, so 
Dr. Kleiman, can you can you address that? So the shingle shot is just a one time for the rest of your life. You don't need to have it repeated again. And you you know it's you know not any vac no vaccine is you know foolproof, and so it is possible to get an illness after you get a vaccine, but you'd still just need the vaccine once. Also, as a follow up, someone called in to ask her, their daughter had shingles at nine. Uh, but that's but she can get that later again in life. I mean, it's not just one time and you're done. Shingles can reoccur. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. All right. Uh, on to the phones we go next to Memphis. Deborah has a question. Go ahead, Deborah. Oh, hi. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Um, my mother-in-law is 86. She actually lives uh, with her husband, uh, my father-in-law, in the back house uh, where we live. She, a few years ago, I guess it's going on easily three or four years, began to feel this tingling she said, and she decided that it was tiny mites in the house, little tiny, tiny black bugs that were getting in her skin, and she began to use a needle to dig those out. She makes terrible wounds on herself that she then bandages. We have had no luck doing anything about this. Her doctor's aware of it. Certainly her husband is. He just says, yes, honey, those little black bugs, it's awful. She has this sensation she feels and that this is the reason for it. Can you, does this sound like anything that makes any sense to you as far as anything that would be caused by some nerve problem or anything at all that we might address better than we have so far? That's a, it's a really good question, Deborah. Um, that is actually called a tactile hallucination. We didn't talk about that before, but it's having the feeling of something on your skin. Um, and her having self-injury from that, uh, I would think that she would most likely benefit from being started on an antipsychotic because she is hurting herself. This would be a prime example that we would use an antipsychotic and just closely monitor her. Yeah, and that's something in the in the meantime, you know, a lot of family support could help with this, you know, making yeah. try and I'm sure you've done all this, Deborah, but um, just for everyone, you know, making sure that you don't try to get needles out of the house, try mm-hmm. to get knives put up, anything that she could use to hurt herself and, and then just have people around her. Um, and maybe these as these medicines get started, then then this will resolve. All right, uh, Deborah, thanks for the call. And a follow up there, you know, she mentioned that the, the doctor was aware of it. Is that is this uh, something that's maybe not common knowledge or? Uh... Well, I think this is somewhere where a geriatrician is really important, you know, because a primary care doctor that's seeing, especially like a family practitioner that's that's got to treat children as well as all ages of adults, you know, it's just it's not possible to know everything about everything and so this is where a specialist can help you um and and we have i'm you know a great group at university and dr clement i think y'all are moving out to the grants ferry area yeah so beginning in july right now we just see patients up at the pavilion at the university hospital beginning in july there will actually be two physicians out at grants ferry because a lot of patients have asked to go out there i'll be one of them myself as well as dr kim tarver all right, uh, another caller is on the line, and it's Kenner. Kenner, what do you have for us today? Uh, I'm a liver transplant patient or recovering from uh, post-liver transplant, and I take Prograf, which is a, has to do with my immune system and so forth. And I was wondering about your shingles uh, advice. Right. Uh, I'm 70, approaching 72, and uh, yeah, so- I'd like to take that, but I had can't you gotten a cautionary remark about it, and I wanted to check it with you. Yeah, so you're, that's a good question, and you unfortunately cannot have this vaccine. So anybody that's had a transplant, um, 
you have to be on with with whatever organ, liver, kidney, heart, lung, um, bone marrow. You you know you're going to have to be on medicines that um, su- that suppress your immune system because you don't want your immune system to attack that transplanted organ um, and and cause the organ to fail. And um, so you're going to be on Prograf is a is a very immunosuppressive medicine, and so. Giving you this vaccine with the live virus would probably give you shingles. Um, and so that's not something that you're going to be able to take, unfortunately. All right, uh, Kenner, thanks for the call. Uh, Dr. Kleiman, uh, a question then, you know, I think we hear a lot when we're in our 20s, 30s, 40s, as we're growing older, you know, take care of yourself and that sort of thing. If you are not diligent with, with health in, in the earlier part of your life, does it really catch up to you as you get older? It does indeed, because if you um, don't eat right, if you don't exercise regularly, you're putting yourself at risk of heart disease. Um, You're putting yourself at risk of osteoporosis later on, as well as kidney and liver failure if you have uh, underlying diseases like high blood pressure, diabetes. So the best thing to do is to eat a healthy diet, wash your calories, and to exercise at least five times a week, 30 minutes moderate intensity aerobics. Uh, Most likely, if you don't do that, later on, you'll suffer from a lot of ailments when you're elderly, or you may not even live to see those years. Because I guess no matter how good of shape we are in, our bodies do eventually begin to wear out. And so the idea would be, don't add extra problems to what nature would would give us all. Yeah, absolutely. If you have extra weight on you, that's going to cause you to have knee arthritis starting as early on as your 50s, and that's very painful. Yeah, and there's not a lot you can do about that kind of arthritis except once, you know, pain control, and then when it gets to a certain point, replace the joints. Um, and <clears throat> that's a really common common reason. So as far as your exercise, people sometimes, how you know, how, how much can I exercise? Or, you know, how hard should I be working out? And one of, one of our colleagues has a way of explaining it to patients that I really like. He says, you ought to um, exercise to get your... Um, heart rate up to a point where it's not comfortable to um, where where you can still talk but not sing. So you ought to you shouldn't be so out of breath um, that you can't even talk, but you should be out of breath enough that it would be difficult to sing. So I think that's an easy way that people, without having to measure your heart rate, have a heart rate monitor, that kind of thing, is an easy way to to see if you need to be pushing yourself a little harder. We're about out of time. If you didn't get a chance to get your question answered uh, today, a reminder of our email address. Again, it's southernremedy at mpbonline.org. In addition to using those email questions on the program, uh, Dr. Rick will send you a personal response, so be sure to get some sort of information back every time you email the program. Again, it's southernremedy at mpbonline.org. And you've been listening to Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Kevin Farrell thanking Dr. Alan Harris and our guest, Dr. Alicia Kleinman. Southern Remedy is produced by Jenny Wilburn, and thanks to our call screener, Sharita Brent. Dr. Brick will be back next week talking about your glands, so be with us then.